Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to the Doctor Who Davies Era Recap. This song is ending, but the story never ends. For this bonus episode, we'll be taking a look back at the story of the Russell T. Davies era of Doctor Who. We'll also be taking a look at some of the broader themes and character development over the course of the series so far. We recommend that you finish watching series 1 through 4 of Doctor Who before listening to this episode. Alright, so here we are. We're a big turning point Yeah. in the, uh, in the era. So... Um, Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say other than that. I guess we're done. That's podcast That's over. That's it. All right. The shortest podcast ever. Um, well, luckily, I have lots to say. Um, <laughs> so you can, you can just sit there quietly and listen, can, or you can respond as you feel inclined. I, I can take this one off. Huh? <laughs> you can take it. Just kick back your feet. Because um, yeah. kind of... We kind of did a little thing like this with Angel, like, you know, inserting a little intro to Angel. But... It was sort of different because I think we'd talked about a lot about the um, that spinoff in the lead up to it, kind of mm-hmm. who was going to be leaving and the change yeah, and everything. Story wise, um, you already yeah, kind of knew whereas, stuff was coming. Yeah, whereas this um, I think is slightly different, and I and I wanted I have some things I wanted to go over that I didn't want to take a ton of time away from the actual episode discussions themselves. Um, so I thought this would kind of be a good opportunity to do that. Um, so I guess we're going to just start with some behind the scenes things that are worth noting. Um, so the first thing I have is that I mentioned that the Davies era team went to Comic-Con in 2009, which is the first time that they went officially Mm -hmm. for Doctor Who. Um, and while they were there, um, Guinness World Records, uh, presented Davies with a plaque, uh, naming Doctor Who, quote, the most successful sci-fi series, <laughs> which is sort of a strange thing to, you know, have, like, how do you measure success? Um, but it was kind of based on a mix of longevity and ratings and DVD sales and web popularity and everything. Um, yeah. so, now, specifically you know, his reformulation of Dr. Hugh or, or like, no, just no, as the, a complete... no, as a, as a complete thing. Um, okay. Yeah, so longevity being, you know, part of the success being that it was uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. approaching its 50th year at that point. So, um, you know, so all of those things combined, you know, sort of contributed to that. So that kind of marked a big thing. And that's actually not the last Guinness record that we're going to see for the show, but it was the first. Mm. Um, so uh, something else I wanted to note Um just kind of as a peek into the, you know, what Doctor Who world was like at this point in time. Um, Moffat recently gave an interview um, where he actually said that the BBC considered canceling the show when Davies and Tennant were leaving. Um, so Moffat said, this is, him, this is a quote, David owned that role in a spectacular way, gave it an all-new, cheeky, sexy performance, and became a national treasure. And he didn't do it instantly, he did it over time. So the idea that Doctor Who could go on at all in the absence of David and Russell was a huge question. I didn't realize how many people thought it wouldn't succeed at all. That was quite terrifying when I found out about it later. I think there were plans maybe to consider ending it. 
it was Russell T. Davies saying, you are not allowed to end it. So, you know, in thinking about that, I kind of take four things away from that. One is just another reason to love Russell Davies, um, fighting for a show that he's no longer in charge of, you know, and kind of making sure that it continues past him. Um, two, being studio executives, again, prove that they don't know anything. <laughs> sure. And, you know, considering canceling one of their golden properties just because they're not sure whether it can continue seems like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if I ever heard one. Um, you know, the third thing being for the studio and for the public, the extent to which, um, Tennant and, and probably Davies too, kind of at that point owned that role, you know, that, you know, it wasn't, it was kind of slightly different with, um, you know, the companions who were maybe only there for a year or two at a time or, or Eccleston who only did one season, you know, mm. but Tennant had been doing that part for like four or five years at that point when you kind of add them all together. Um, and, you know, it had kind of reached the point where people forgot what it was like before he was the doctor and found it kind of, you know, maybe difficult to think of what yeah. it could be after that. Sure. Um, and then, you know, the last thing being just as an example of the amount of pressure that Moffat and his team were under, um, kind of having the executives leaning over you, expecting you to fail. So it kind of shows you uh, what they went through at the time. Yeah. Um, okay. Some other things I wanted to point out about um, kind of the Russell Davies, uh, or I guess, you know, what he's, you know, moved on to since then. Um, according to Moffat, Moffat's actually invited him back several times um, since then to write episodes. Um, and so far he's declined, you know, happily, cheerfully, he was, ready to move on and Moffat kind of you know says I wrote for him all those years and darn it now he's abandoned me and everything um so I mean I think with no clearly no bitterness there because he and Moffat you know have really nothing but good things to say about each other um but it was just one of those things that you've been working on it pretty much non-stop since you started and you're ready for a break um so he uh, moved to L.A. actually after he uh, stopped doing the show. Um, and he and Julie Gardner were supposed to develop some co-productions between, you know, the U.K. and the U.S., um, which they did with Torchwood. So actually, you can watch Torchwood Series 4 now. Oh. Um, now, it actually didn't come out for a little while, and it doesn't really... It, it didn't transmit at this point. It was kind of, I think, halfway through season six of Doctor Who, um, but uh, I'll kind of semi-spoil that the two storylines don't really have anything to do with each other, so okay. you're not going to spoil yourself by watching Torchwood, um, and that's actually the last series of Torchwood that exists. Um, I mean, you know, the BBC, one day they will probably pick it up and bring it back, but uh, they haven't yet, so that came out in 2011. Okay. Um, and then actually after that, um, Davies ended up moving back to the UK because his, uh, partner was diagnosed with brain cancer. So, you know, the whole moving to LA thing really only lasted for a couple of years. Um, 
but he continued to be involved with um, the Sarah Jane Adventures, which he was still running. And um, he also created this uh, kids show called Wizards vs. Aliens with uh, Phil Ford, who is the guy who wrote The Waters of Mars with him. Um, so they've still got that. And I think he's got some other productions in development with the BBC as well. Um, so, you know, kind of just in doing research for this, it kind of seems like the big points that people, you know, look at him, what it is that he brought to Doctor Who was this kind of renewed respectability, which is something I've mentioned, that it was no longer, you know, a joke, something that was like a cult wobbly sci-fi show, but something which was, you know, really a flagship for the BBC, and you can see kind of why Moffat and everyone is under such pressure to maintain the quality. Um, and then obviously taking it to new heights of popularity in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, Phil Collinson, the producer, said, um, you know, that he made it accessible as a drama, not just something for niche sci-fi fans, but, you know, people, uh, you know, all ages... Uh, all genders, all types of people, which was something that it had been back in its heyday, um, mm -hmm. but it maybe hadn't had the reputation for being that, um, you know, accessible since yeah. then. Um, and then Philip Sandifer, who I have uh, quoted a number of times, is a Doctor Who blogger, um, names Davies as one of the three most influential writers on Doctor Who, the other two for fact fans being... David Whitaker and Robert Holmes, um, just in terms of, I guess, reinventing it and bringing it back and kind of modernizing it um, to what we expect now from TV. Yeah. Um, okay. David Tennant. Um, well, so, wait, wait, wait. Before yes. we move off of Davies, <clears throat> yeah. did he... I mean, I know you sort of... You, maybe you sort of already mentioned that, or, or answered this question, but did he give... A reason other than it's just time to move on, you know, to why a, he yeah. left. I think that's exactly it. I mean, he'd planned to do it for a number of years. I don't know at what point um, or and why it was, you know, four years and a bit like if that was just a nice round number or what. But um, it I, you know, there I mean, doesn't seem to be any um, yeah, five years almost by the time five, you get to the actual Specials and, well, and, and you know, and, all of them. and I think he started working on the like pitching it to the BBC and doing oh, casting yeah. and all that as early yeah, and, as 2003. And, and production, so, right? Yeah, you're gonna have a, a year or two at least. Yeah, so you're looking at probably like six or seven years all told or something. Mm. Um, and I think, um, I recently read uh, this book called The Writer's Tale, which is a series of emails back and forth between him and this writer for Doctor Who magazine, which they just kind of said, hey, this would be a fun article, and then it turned into a book-length project. Um, and it kind of just shows the process of being the showrunner and everything. And you can absolutely tell there's no, um, you know, negative reason to leave. It wasn't any, you know strife with anybody or he wasn't fired um you know it wasn't any sort of yeah. getting tired of the show or anything i think it's uh i mean the one thing that's really clear from when you read that is that um he worked pretty much 24 7 um and uh it's something that is slightly different um because moffat has a wife and kids 
um, and also, you know, runs Sherlock at the same time. Um, sure. And the production under Moffat does slow down a bit. Um, like there are, there's more, it's a less reliable schedule. Um, pretty soon into Moffat, we're going to start with things like there being um, breaks in the middle of seasons or mm. it being transmitted at different times of the year. Um, and I think that says less, people like to rag on Moffat about that, like to say, oh, he's too slow or he doesn't care about the show or he cares more about Sherlock or whatever. I think it says less about Moffat than it does about the inhuman schedule, which Davies maintained. Um, sure. And I think, I mean, Davies had a partner, but his partner stayed in Manchester and he moved down to Cardiff full time. And you just read this book and it's like emails at every hour of the day, you know, mm. middle of the night, all the sure. time, every single day. Um, so he kind of worked at a ridiculous pace. Um, and he also had Julie Gardner um, as the executive producer who, you know, is definitely as revolutionary a figure as he is in terms of the overall TV landscape at the time. And she, like, absolutely moved mountains for him to get him what he needed. Um, and Moffat has executive producers, but he doesn't really have one partner like Davies had with Julie Gardner. Um, so, uh, all that to say, I'm, I think probably after six or whatever years of that, you just need to stop, um, you know, and it was time and time to kind of, and that's just kind of the nature of this show in particular, you know, that companions come and go, doctors come and go, and the writers come and go, and it's kind of like every couple years, you need to just do a whole overhaul and throw everything out and start over um mm. and you know and and it's easy to kind of see that with actors like oh they leave and then they come back but it's kind of like when when you hand over the reins to the writing you know to somebody else it has an even bigger impact on the feel of the show because somebody else is in control of where it's going and everything um so you know it kind of even more than a doctor changing, it sort of changes everything from the ground up, I guess. Um, and Ears of the Classic Show had very distinct feels, on, depending on who the head writer was at the time. Um, so it's just sort of a natural thing. And he, you know, he doesn't give a ton of interviews now because I think it's it's kind of like the president. Like I heard someone say recently, like the current president or the, the past president, um, Generally, it's etiquette not to say a whole lot about the incumbent, you know, like you kind of sure. once you if you're the last guy who's just left, you don't really go out like shooting your mouth off about whatever the guy in office is doing now. You know, you might do that later or something, but um, there doesn't seem to be any, you know, tension between Moffat and Davies and um, and uh, Davies actually still watches the show. Uh, you know, he's been clear about that. Like, and actually Moffat said he emails him every time there's a new episode. Like he gets an email <laughs> from Russell with his thoughts on whatever happened. So, you know, and, and like every interview he gave was always about, Oh, I can't wait to watch it as a fan and to not yeah. know what's going to happen next that he hasn't, he hadn't had that experience since the eighties. 
Um, sure. You know, but he went through all the 90s and all the years that he ran it, you know, not getting the, oh, there's a new episode, what's going to happen kind of feeling. Mm. So, um, and it's actually, to transition into Tenet, very similar with him. You know, he knew that it was Russell's plan to leave when he did, and his idea was, well, he's going. It seems like a natural thing to go with him and to just let the new guys come in and make it their own. Um, mm. Moffat actually begged him to stay. <laughs> yeah, because... <laughs> I, I was wondering about it because, I mean, there's also an argument for having more of a link. Exactly. And that's what I think in Moffat's fear of what is going to be everyone's reaction he kind of <clears throat> was trying to convince Tennant to do just one more season. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll link to it. Um, Moffat's actually said, you know, roughly what would have been the story if Tennant had stayed on for one more year. Um, oh, wow. And you can, it's kind of interesting. You can kind of see some similarities to season five, but there's also some big differences. So um, it's kind of interesting well, to, to ponder. Maybe we'll link to it after season five then. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can probably link to it after the next episode, actually. Um, but we won't post any spoilers. Um, but uh, yeah. So, and and so, and I re I remember reading that, and you get to that bit in the writer's tale where Russell's assuming that Tennant's leaving, and then he emails the other guy to say, uh, apparently he's having lunch with Stephen Moffat. <laughs> so, you know, there was a little bit of temptation. He says, you know, he was. <clears throat> Tennant has said he was tempted to stay just because of his, uh, you know, respect for Moffat as a writer and knew mm -hmm. it would be a really good season. Um, but he actually came back and said, it sounds genius, but I want to watch it, not be in it. That he was just, again, like Russell, ready to be a fan, ready to not be working that crazy schedule. And, you know, um, it was just sort of time to move on. And I think, too that he'd already sort of made that decision and you get into that kind of thing of not wanting to second guess yourself. Like, mm. you know, I've already decided this. I can't start going back on it now. Um, so, you know, he's the fanboy. Of course he continues to watch the show. Um, and it's funny when he and Matt Smith are together, they kind of say, um, they kind of each look at each other as the doctor a little bit because, uh, you know, Matt Smith, you know, David was the doctor when he came to it. And then now Tennant watches the show or has watched the show with Matt as the doctor. And so when sure. they meet up, they're kind of looking at each other like, this is a little weird. <laughs> and yeah. neither of them really thinks of themselves that way. It's always the other one. Um, hmm. But uh, so um, he's definitely, you know, and I, I want to talk a little bit about his acting, I guess, and what he brought to the role, but just in terms of like the more public side of it, um, he's definitely remembered as one of the most popular and favorite doctors. Um, he was the first one to ever unseat Tom Baker. Well, since they've been having fan polls, you know, the first one to ever unseat Tom Baker in the favorite doctor polls. And Tom Baker is sort of, I think of him as the Sean Connery of Doctor Who. Like, he's the one, he's the classic. The one that, that everybody like, knows. The one that everybody, he's the, like, one, yeah. he's the one with the long scarf and the most kind of iconic. And the one that most people would say, like, when you think of the Doctor, who do you think of? Um, you know, but, you know, so probably there was 
none of the doctors after him really ever got out of his shadow um, okay. until Tennant um, kind of managed to do that. And probably, you know, Eccleston maybe could have got there if he had longer in the role. Um, but the fact that I think Tennant was able to develop the character over several years and it, and it became enormously popular when he was on um, mm -hmm. sort of helped with that. Mm -hmm. um, and he won national television awards every single year that he was on the show, which is a popular award. Um, so, you know, for favorite actor. So he definitely made a huge mark. And just like uh, Moffat was under a huge amount of pressure, poor Matt Smith had to <laughs> yeah. step into something which was pretty intimidating. Um, Absolutely. So I want to say a few things about him. Um, so Matt Smith actually auditioned for the role of Watson in Sherlock. Oh, um, and oh wow. That so would that would have been weird. Um, Moffat liked his audition, but you can kind of see they'd already picked Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock. Mm -hmm. And you could kind of see they're a little too similar, maybe, now that you've watched one episode and you can probably, you know, see this as you go forward. There's a kind of... Uh, quirkiness to it you know which would have been a little bit too similar you need someone very normal like martin freeman for that role um so they liked the audition but you know he wasn't right for that part um but he did come back shortly later to audition for the doctor and he auditioned actually on the first day um and they immediately loved him and then continued to do auditions because they felt like they had to but really just mm -hmm. wanted to give him the role the whole time um so he was 26 when he got the part um, which was the youngest doctor ever by three years. Um, okay. Peter Davison, the one with the celery, was the youngest before that. Okay. Um, Moffat had actually sworn that he would never cast someone under 40. Um, so oh, wow. he kind of had to eat his own words there. One, yeah. yeah, it was sort of like, well, until you find the right person, and then, you know, what do I know? Um, and... So definitely the fact that he was very young and was relatively unknown made him a pretty risky choice. Um, he'd done things like he wasn't, he's 26, so it's not like he just started acting, but he'd had, mm -hmm. you know, supporting roles in TV and some theater. So nothing major, you know, so there's lots sure. of Doctor Who puns in the headlines and everything. Um, sure. <laughs> and um, this guy? Unlike, you know, contrasting Tennant, he didn't grow up with the show because, you know, he grew up... Because it didn't exist. What's that? Because it didn't exist. Pretty much. As a like, show. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like it was he would have been very, like, very young. If... He would have been very young and it was sort of declining in popularity. Um, and then, you know, through all of the 90s, it just wasn't on TV. So, yeah, so he had no real context. Um, although when he did get the part, he did research and, you know, he'll talk about which episodes really impacted him or which doctors he really thought he'd like to maybe try to emulate and everything. So it's not like he kept himself away from it. Um, it's just that he literally didn't grow up with it. Um, so we're going to talk lots more about him, but I wanted to kind of mention those things. Um, so then just looking forward to the Moffat era in general, um, you know, I kind of mentioned it's not just the head writer, it's not just Russell that's leaving, but it's a lot. Um, you know, Julie Gardner is leaving, Phil Collinson, a good chunk of the production team, um, all of the actors who've been associated with, you know, and that's not to say that we won't see them again, but they're not going to come back on a regular basis 
you know, sure. at least immediately. Um, so it really is, you know, everything that's sort of being thrown out the window. Um, and I kind of found this quote interesting. So this is kind of Russell's attitude to the whole thing uh, in 2007, actually. So as far back as that, he was thinking about when he was going to leave. Um, he wrote in one of his emails, the best thing that a new team can do is move in, trample over the way we did things, and find new ways for themselves. While I'm sure we'll be around to help and support the newcomers, they'd be better off packing up our stuff and throwing our boxes in the street. New show, new team, new start. So it's sort of just the spirit of the whole thing, that Russell isn't just like he sort of, when he brought back the show, kept some things the same but made other things totally different. He's expecting Moffat to do the same. That's sort of what you do, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know I did a lot of the talking there, mostly just because it's stuff that I feel like it's good for, you know, you as a first-time viewer to know and any of our listeners who might be first-time viewers. Um, you know, I don't know whether you have anything to say about any of that. It's more just stuff that I thought it's kind of good to have in context of it was a, a peaceful transfer of power, not a, yeah. not a, you know, tumultuous one, if that makes yeah. sense. Not a hostile takeover. Or no, no. Um, yeah, no, that's all interesting. I, I didn't know any of that about Matt Smith, the auditioning and, yeah. and any of that stuff. Um, so what, do you know anything of note that he might've been in? I know you said he was relatively obscure or unknown. What was Matt Smith in? Yeah. Um, Before then, anything? You know, a lot of just, I think, British stuff. So not even stuff that I know very well. He actually acted with Billy Piper a couple times. They're actually really good friends. Because um, she did this show when she left Doctor Who called Secret Diary of a Call Girl. Mm. Um, and he was a client in that. Um, and, okay. uh And something else. There was a adaptation of these philip pullman books like ruby in the smoke it's like these like kind of children's mystery books okay um she and matt did that together so he'd acted with her a couple times um and so i mean things like that like little bbc tv productions but you know not even that well known in britain let alone internationally um sure so uh, you know, and I'm sure he'd done theater and everything. So, um, you know, probably someone with a lot of experience, but not a lot of exposure. Ah, um, gotcha. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just an well, interesting change going from kind of, you know, Tennant, who was not hugely well known, I think, when he started. He wasn't unknown either, but was maybe a name or a face that you would recognize, you know, whereas mm-hmm. going to Matt Smith. Um, you know, and then especially by the time Tennant's leaving, he's, you know, one of the most recognizable faces in the country and, you know, sort of scrutinized by the press on a daily basis. So then, well, and has gone on to do a bunch of acclaimed stuff after as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, he's done, hmm. you know, he went straight to Royal Shakespeare Company, did Hamlet, um, has done a lot of, you know. TV that's been really popular across the pond. He's done movies mm-hmm. and everything. So, um, 
Yeah, but Matt Smith kind of coming in from not nobody knowing his name to suddenly <laughs> you're in like the biggest part in the country and everybody knows your name. Mm -hmm. um, but but they didn't have any loyalty to him, I guess. So you kind of have to win them over, you know, with your own talent, not because he's a, a name or a face that people feel attachment to ahead of time or anything. Sure. Um. So um, I have a couple other quotes here. I don't know that maybe we need to go into all of it because I think I've covered a lot of it. Um, but I guess we maybe, is there anything else we want to say about, um, well, it's hard because I guess my impulse here is to want to kind of talk about what did Davies contribute to the story as a way of clearing the deck for Moffat, but that's hard to talk about without just talking at you because you haven't seen the Moffat era yet. So maybe we're compare. Maybe it's kind of a futile thing to want to compare without having seen the other half of the comparison. Um, so I might have been a little, a little over ambitious in this recap here. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure where to go. Um, yeah, I mean, so, and, and I think it's tough, too, because we've already sort of done recaps of the different seasons. I mean, um, you know, I in preparation for this, I know I went back and listened to all 60 hours plus of audio that we have. So I'm I don't sure know if you you're did. prepared for that. No, of course I didn't. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think one of the, the interesting things, though, is is seeing how the themes you know get sort of my first in inclination was to say recycled but maybe that's not even quite right like you know reused and and to see the variations of the things like you know never say never ever mm. you know which gets turned into the song is ending soon you know yeah, like yeah. like just that idea that throughout it is about enjoying the moment but also understanding that part of the enjoyment of that moment is knowing that it's enjoyable because it could end at any time sure you know what i mean and that there is uh you know a sort of sadness amongst the joy of you know the the not just in the future of things ending but of all the stuff that has ended in the past uh with the things like the time war which we learn about very early on, or at least hear mention of very early on, but don't get the full sort of brunt of it. And even now, we don't yeah. really know the cause of it. And you get all these tantalizing, you know, things at the end, you know, the meanwhiles and the, you know, right, right, this right. and that, the, you know, the various monsters that, you know, the doctor's afraid that will come through. So... You can, I mean, on the one hand, you can definitely see it as, you know, it's, it is the same story, just retold time and again, but, it is, but it's very much done in a fresh way. Like, I mean, it, you never feel like they just took the plot of one story and sort of made a few tweaks and here yeah. it is another story. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where that's just how life is. You know, it's every story kind of has that same, mm -hmm. you know, under, you know, sort of the, the, the 
I forget what they call it when there's just like a single note, just like beating in a song, you know, as mm-hmm. the rest of the melody is like kind of playing over. There's a term for that, but you know, it's that sort of thing. Like, you know, like the master's head, you know, the beats that's just sort of like in his head there all the time, you know, sort of driving what he does. You kind of get that same feel with the overarching story from the minute Christopher Eccleston walks yeah. on the screen to the minute that David Tennant walks off it. So I, I think that's really neat I'll, in particular because you've stated a number of times in various instances, I think that like there were so much things that were done early on that just were throwaway in a way mm-hmm. like that. There were, you know, like things that, um, you know, like the ring, you know, the master's ring falling out of the flaming right. pyre. Right, 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 yeah. Davy said he never knew that he would use that. You might, might not. You know, yeah. you get that sort of feeling like there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Like, he threw in that there was a time war. Well, what's a time war? I don't know. Let's figure that out. Right, you know? <laughs> like, right. And like, that is, I, without, and again, this isn't an, this doesn't have to be an either or, you know, preference thing. But just to throw this out there, um... I think that is a slight, I think Davies, we already talked about how he did a lot towards making this story more serialized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can look at like the kind of mythological arcs, like things like the Time War or the Bad Wolf or Harold Saxon or, you know, uh, the Face of Bo or whatever, um, you know, but... Like you said, a lot of them are just throwaway. It's like you don't realize their significance until later when Davies decides to do something with it. They could have just been... When he gives them significance. When he gives them significance. He could have just been... You could have just had the face of Bo and never really find out who he is, you know? Or you could have just had the time war and maybe not even got as much detail as we did eventually get. Um, That there's a kind of, you know, looseness to his arcs. You know, like even like mm. Bad Wolf is just it's not like it's driving the plot. It's just a thing that you hear and then it becomes significant at the end of the season. But it's not like every single episode is driving home the Bad Wolf thing, you know. Um, yeah. So I think that's maybe kind of how Davies has worked with the serialized arcs. Um, and I think we can maybe start to look for some differences when Moffat starts, um, because we've seen him, yeah. uh, even within single episodes, have more kind of a deliberate, you know, how tightly master plotted something like Blink is, um, or you know, or you've seen he introduces River Song and Silence in the Library, and and it's not like Bad Wolf where, well, maybe that'll come back or maybe it won't. It's like you yeah. know she's gonna come back. Yeah, you, you know, know she's, she's, she's hugely important. Moffat is very much less improvisational in his myth-making. I think he's more the type to do a kind of Outlines and, yeah, yeah, yeah. like... like, Yeah, yeah. and and that's not to say that he's not figuring it out as he goes either, and that's not to say that Davies isn't um, a careful writer. You know, it's just a different style of writing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And... That kind of brings me to one of the other things I just kind of wanted to mention is, you know, I have kind of a list here of what I think of are the main kind of Davies era themes. And I think it's kind of interesting just to sort of mention them because what's kind of strange about this now is that this we're, we're dealing with a story which has been now 
you know, hand it over to somebody else. So, you know, all of these things that, you know, Moffat's inheriting somebody else's story, you know, and all the inherent thematic stuff that comes with it. So, you know, he's going to have to reckon with themes that are already in play. So it's interesting to see which ones he, you know, you know, takes up and continues, which ones he sort of drops entirely, um, or which ones he kind of says, okay, I'm going to continue to play with this, but let's take it in a different direction than we did before. Mm. Um, so, you know, things like, you know, this, this maxim of everything has its time and everything dies, which I think is maybe the definitive Davies era theme, if I had to pick one. Um, you know, I've talked about the fairy tale tropes, um, which is one I find really interesting because I think Davies and Moffat are both engaged with that, but I think they do very different things with it. Sure. Um, so Davies, for me, it's all about this divide between the fantastic and the mundane. You know, I always come mm. back to Rose, you know, of that tension between her mother being afraid that she'll never come back to the ordinary world and Rose being afraid that she'll get stuck back in the ordinary world. That's kind of, to me, where the fairy tale comes in, in that, that tension of which would be worse, to, to lose it forever or to never be able to come back. Um, and Moffat doesn't quite use the fairy tale genre in that way. Um, yeah. He kind of mixes it up a bit. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Well, um, yeah, and that's, that's interesting because I think, so just picking up on what you said about Rose, you know, I never really thought about it this way, but like you take then Martha afterwards who yeah. really wants to have the fairy tale, but just can't seem to get there. Right. She, you, you know, the, the fairy tale does include the kiss from the, you know, wandering yeah. night or whatever you want to call the doctor. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, but she doesn't get to that point. So for her, it's kind of the opposite. It's like, she's trying to get, into fairy, you know, yeah. so to speak, and trying to find that fairy tale, and she never does, and that's why she ends up leaving. Right. Um, although, right. apparently, she ends up finding it with Mickey, which is weird. But, um, <laughs> yeah. The, the, we don't need to talk about that too much. Uh, <laughs> which it is what it is. You know, well, whatever. I've seen it, weirder. I've seen stranger couple, couples. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, I think it's just jarring because there's no preparation for it, you know? Yeah. So, well, it, and, There's not much okay. you can really say about it. Not to but. go on this weird tangent, but I do remember you saying that um, there was initially some thought that they might be in Torchwood together. Right. So maybe there was going to be more development and in yeah, that And you do aspect. have to wonder, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. That would sort of, it's like the missing link, <laughs> you know, between yeah. between those two things. Yeah. Um, it, it also, I'm kind of fond of the idea that for Martha, it all comes back around to Smith and Jones. And there's a nice circularity sure. to that, but sure. but that doesn't make the revelation any less jarring when you see it for the first time. Yeah. And um, it does, I don't think, I'm sure this wasn't intended because I know how much Davies loves his characters, but it does smatter a little bit of the kind of pairing the rejects together at the end, which is a slightly distasteful idea. You know, you kind of want them to be, you know... Well, especially yeah. when Martha and Tom <laughs> right. were together. Exactly. So, yeah. like, yeah. So, yeah, she, she already had a good relationship. So, you something kind of feel happened like, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and anyway. I think it, it does just come down to the fact that we just didn't get enough of it 
really, I, I think. I really didn't mean to take us down that particular no, road, no, but, we didn't, but I think... We didn't mention it last time, so I think that was good. I think, um, you know, to go back to sort of the, the bigger themes, just talking about the... Like you were talking about Rose, you know, sort of the, the pull between the mundane and the fairy. Yeah. Martha feels the same pull, but is less successful than Rose at finding the fairy, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, whereas with Rose, when she finds it, it ruins her. You know, I mean, like literally yeah. she gets put in a different, you know, dimension or whatever. So which is better, you know, right, in the right. long run. Right. Um, right. And, and I think that's kind of the tension of that fairy divide of. Yeah. If, if you're to end up on the other on one side of a locked door, which side do you want to be on? You know, mm. um, yeah, which is and, sort of all you know comes back to Rose and is either on either side one, of the wall. You know, yeah, is either one good or bad or right? You know, right. do they both have their well? They're inevitably issues. bittersweet on both ends. Um, right. There's something lost, but something gained on both sides. I think. Um, um, so I think that is Davies' engagement with the fairy tale is yeah. that that pull well, between I, and the I was mundane talk about and the Donna fantastic. Too. Yeah, because I mean it's a it's well, a similar thing. I mean she gets there right. She becomes fairy, so to speak. Like you know, I mean mm-hmm. we're using this weird metaphor of fairy um, in a very Tolkienian sense. I'm sure both of us, but uh, yeah. you know she she becomes you know she like she becomes the Doctor Donna and finds it, and then like even yeah, and you have that moment of it's almost even worse for her because now. She becomes same old mundane Donna again at the end, but now with no hope of yeah. finding whatever the fairy could ever. So, you know, you know, talk about one falling on, you know, falling on one side or the other and having yeah. bittersweetness to it. Yeah. I mean, she has all the bitter without any of the sweet, it seems. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, uh, so. Right. So, yeah. yeah, no, I think that all. That all works. Um, yeah, and then um, I guess the other things I would kind of pick out too would be this this ongoing theme of the Doctor's loneliness. And you talked about last time that this is a change. He's regenerating on his own. Um, we haven't seen that since, you know, uh, we, he's had periods on his own, but not a actual yeah. regeneration. With, and an I extended think, period of alone time before Right, the, leading up to it. Um, yes. Right, I think we said the only really possible one might have been between eight and nine because we don't actually well, see that. Well, exactly, line. it's kind of bringing so it back we don't around to know. Eggleston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We and we really don't know what happened there. So he could have right. had someone with him that he left. Like we we right. don't even know how long he's been the doctor. Exactly. We just know that it was somewhat recently because he yeah. hadn't like seen himself in the mirror and stuff. Right. So, right. Um. um anyway. Yeah. That's not, I mean, right. So yeah, you get this prolonged period of aloneness, but there's also many references throughout all the seasons of his being alone. And, and the idea that, uh, you know, from the beginning, I mean, that's the whole idea of looking for a companion, right. Is to not be alone. Right. And both (laughs) kind of the, the dualism of that, of the loneliness aspect and the fact of, like practically needing somebody else, you know, of we, we've kind of seen what happens when he's on his own. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
you know, we see the consequences of that. So um, I think that's something that Moffat can only account for if he's going to, like, if you're going to continue the story, you have to engage with that idea because Davies has sort of woven that into the story to such an extent. Um, you know, also the things which Davies added about, uh, you know, this wasn't ever really a big thing in the classic show of Earth becoming aware of alien life, you know, whereas Davies adds in the, these global-sized invasions and news reports and mm. characters even reference past invasions, which they never yeah. did before. So there's more a sense of awareness in the world, yeah. I think, of them living in a post... Which, right, that go, goes with sort of the interconnectedness of the modern... Era, yeah, yeah, right? definitely. Or the postmodern era, or whatever you want to call it. Right. And and even that, you know, then you get like the Torchwood, where you have the, you know, you have Jack sort of overdubbing. You know, this is twenty uh, first century is when you know humans become aware of. You yeah, know, yeah. The, the, so like that's changes, sort of the whole yeah, yeah. right. Everything changes, whatever. And and I think that actually comes from an episode he's in with the in Doctor Who, right? Or or there, there's some reference to. The significance yeah, yeah, of maybe, the twenty first. Maybe something with Eccleston. He kind of says that, doesn't he? Like, yeah, this like, is when, like, like when with World War Three or, or something. something. You know, it's like yeah, the first. Seems to be right. Like it's there is a, a very distinct twenty first century. Maybe not in a specific event, but like you said, like it's that people are waking up, becoming aware. They're starting to see all the different invasions. Some of them sort of get, you know moved out of their minds but even just between like torchwood and unit and that kind of stuff like people are noticing them more you know yeah. what i mean like so yeah just a lot of different different stuff happening like even with um you know supposedly with uh, uh the master you know and and the whole harold saxon stuff like you know, after it was all done, people kind of kept it hush hush. You know, oh, Harold Saxon just went crazy. Like it, there, you know, it was kind of like this whole, you know, with the the reversal of the year that Martha was gone and whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not you don't get any memory of that kind of stuff, but there's still something in people's minds. Like, yeah, they still know something sort of happened and aren't right, quite right, sure. Right. And people still remember Saxon, of course, yeah, um, because they didn't revert all the way back. So it's just kind of this this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this idea of the ongoing, you know, growing awareness of stuff being out there and the response and the excitement. Because then you also get, you know, like with Waters of Mars, it's about inspiration to move further out. Right. So it's not only about more being aware of what's coming to you, but being proactive and going out and finding, you yeah. know, what's out there. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, and all of that I think is very, you know, specific to something that Davies contributed that maybe didn't exist really in the story before. And again, you know, if you're Moffat, you're thinking, okay, so what are you going to, you know, how are you going to continue that that idea or not? Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, definitely this whole kind of timey-wimey stuff. Um, you know, Davies definitely played with this. We saw... In very subtly, I think less. It's more of a specialty of Moffat's, I guess. Like you get River Song and Sally Sparrow and Madame de Pompadour are very kind of clear examples of timey wimey relationships. Right. Whereas, 
you don't think of that as Russell as much, but then you do have the doctor meeting, if you believe Jack to be the face of Bo, you have the doctor meeting him sort of out of order in, in various mm. points of his life. Um, he first meets Martha out of order, like you said. Um, Cassandra's death, um, you know, kind of brought a full circle, you know, uh, to her story. And then we even got with, um, I was thinking of Elton Pope in that way too, of you get the doctor yeah. popping up in his life at significant points. Um, sort of like Madame the Pompadour that way. So it's definitely something I think that Davies mm -hmm. was starting to kind of play with. And Moffat is definitely, you know, specifically interested in that as sort of what you can do with that theme in a, you know, how can you make a time travel story more twisty? Yeah. Um, and then just like a couple other things, you know, we've talked about the importance of memory. Um, and this is kind of ongoing idea of the metafiction and the story, you know, like the importance of stories, but also Doctor Who being sort of maybe self-aware of itself as a story as well. Um, so all of those are things I just kind of want to flag because Moffat's going to do things with those, you know, and either kind of take them in a different direction or continue to develop them in, you know, in the in the Davies vein, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do want to say a few other things. I want to kind of talk maybe a couple minutes, because um, we kind of talked of when Eccleston regenerated, sort of about what he brought to the role and sort of the fact that his sort of respectability as an actor and the intensity you know that he brought to it really kind of made the part legitimate and made it you know really you know both beloved by the public but also something that people kind of saw the doctor as a serious role again yeah. you know which maybe they hadn't in recent years um so i was kind of thinking you know all right if that's kind of what you know and he Eccleston brought a number of other things to the part, too. I don't mean to, you know, reduce him to that. But if I was kind of trying to think, what do I think of as, you know, specifically Tennant's virtues that he brings to it as an actor, um, the thing I keep coming back to with him is his range. Um, and I think you can kind mm. of see a case, and, you know, we saw this with Eccleston, you know, and then we'll see it with Matt Smith, too, of, you know, they start to write for the actor. So it's always the doctor, but you want the doctor, sure. you want the 10th doctor to be the best of what Tennant can bring to it, basically. Sure. Um, and, like, for me, I just kind of am kind of shocked when I think about the range of stuff he was able to do, but have them all feel like the same character. You know, yeah. like, the kind of effervescence of something like The Girl in the Fireplace, you know... He, but he can also do the kind of intense mania of, like, the waters of Mars, you know? Mm. Or he can be the most vulnerable, but he can also be the most confident, you know? You know, he can be the warmest, but he can also be the coldest, you know? Like, he seems to have such flexibility in his performance. And that, to sure. me, kind of exemplifies the Tenth Doctor, is going to all those extremes. You know, whatever he does, he does it the most he possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, that's kind of the thing which, to me, kind of transformed the role a bit, is 
it can, like, once again, I think, because you have an actor who can do all that stuff, the part can be anything again. Um, and, you know, whatever genre or, or type of story you want to do, you have a doctor who can kind of fine-tune himself to that. Um, yeah. So I don't know if there's anything you wanted to say or not about him specifically. That was the thing which, when I was thinking about what, you know, what the 10th Doctor does. That's sort sure. of what jumped out to me. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all right. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't really think I have anything to add because I think you did a good job of sort of summarizing it, but it's, it's, yeah, he's a great actor and, and you really do get this sense that the Doctor is not a cookie cutter, you know, guy who, sort of approaches every situation the same way he does have his moments of complete anger and he has his moments of complete joy and and sometimes within five minutes of each other you know like right right well and, that's what i was thinking too like of, of something like human nature where you're doing all those extremes in the space of about five minutes mm -hmm. you know yeah no absolutely and and you get this sense yeah that's a good one to pick out because it you know, you do get the sense of just a man falling in love, but, you know, also afraid to do his duty. And mm -hmm. while he's, you know, imploring others to do their duty and trying to stand fast and, you know, have while, well, you know, like the kids are standing there with their guns and stuff and he's like at the front leading them. But mm -hmm. then when it comes time for him to do what he knows he should do, he doesn't want to do it. And, and you know, a lot of different uh, different stuff there. And then even you get him as the doctor pretending not to be the doctor, <laughs> you right, know, right. like, uh, yeah, you know, the, so just, I, I've definitely seen that flagged as like, okay, so he can be, you know, John Smith and the doctor. And those are two separate characters. And then you get the doctor pretending to be John Smith, which is different from both the doctor and John Smith. And somehow right. they're all different from each other, but they're yeah. also all believably the same person in yeah. a way, Yeah, you know, um, yeah, and, and you know, I think in all of those, sort of the, the, the underlying, you know, consistent factor among them all is the sincerity, is that in each one, I think part of the reason why you feel like it's the same person is because you don't ever get a sense that it's just, you know, a shrug off sort of thing, you know, like he's, yeah, yeah. he's, he's in it all the way. And that's how people are. People get happy and sad and angry and you can get all of that in the course of a day. <laughs> so, you know, right. it, it makes it feel, you know, it's gotta be hard to act that way. Cause I mean, that's not who David Tennant is. Although, like you said, they maybe sort of started writing his strengths as they went right, on, right, right. but, but you still get, you still have to act that way and you still have to sort of, find something inside of you to do all of that. And right. I think that's just the mark of a good actor is, is to be able to, to do all of those things believably and consistently believably throughout. Yeah, um, no. And I think definitely the passion that he brings to it as an actor reflects in the kind of passion of the 10th doctor, you know, the kind of, he always believes what he's doing, you know, without reservation, you know, and that kind of translates yeah. into, the sort of, you know, joie de vivre that the Tenth Doctor seems to have with everything, I think. Um, and I, I wanted to mention this, too, because I kind of 
said this back when we talked about human nature that I think I said at the time that I thought of I think of human nature as maybe the quintessential 10th doctor story um and I wanted to come back to that to say kind of why that is and I think it's because it kind of when you've seen the end of time I think there's a huge amount of parallel between John Smith you know facing you know being afraid to and deciding to you know mm. to die and to face his own mortality in service of something that you know more important um and and the kind of uh difficulty of doing that once you've seen the end of time you can kind of see that that's a foreshadowing of that i think and again whether that was intentional i don't know but it still is foreshadowing, you know. I don't care if yeah. it was intentional yeah. story or, wise, time or not. It definitely story is. wise, you know, like you think I have uh the lines here of him saying, Why can't I be John Smith? Isn't he a good man? Why can't why can't I stay? Which is basically he's saying, I don't wanna go, you know. Yeah, I don't um, know. and uh, you know, Joan saying, He was braver than you in the end, that ordinary man, he chose to die, which is sort of the choice that that you know, the tenth doctor has to make in the end. Um mm-hmm. So I think because of that like little stint as a human being and through the rest of his tenure of sort of facing his own mortality, I think the Tenth Doctor is sort of specifically engaged with humanity um, and maybe kind of in some ways, even though he can have moments of extreme alienness, I think he kind of comes the closest to sort of flirting with what it means to be human. Um, and that's something I want to bring up because... Uh, I think maybe we can draw some interesting contrast to the next guy who's coming. Yeah. Um, right. So I just sort of wanted to make sure we covered that. Yeah. Well, and that's probably a good place to stop. Yes. <laughs> so cool. Well, very good. I mean, yeah, you, you can't watch Doctor Who and not sort of hopefully reflect on the the whole Davies era, I guess, as as mm-hmm. just a good thing. I mean, you, you you know, I'm intrigued because you know we've talked, you've met, you've brought it up before a little bit that there seems to be a division among the fans. Right, you know, right. This is like the Buffy Davies thing of you want to see, yeah, you know, Moffat, see where you and fall, of course, or yeah, of course, we've always, not always, we've seen Moffat, yes. you know, have his hand in there, but it was still under the guise of you know, Davies, you know, hand, you know, so to speak or whatever. Right. So, yeah, no, this and, is, and, and Davies would sometimes, um, as Joss Whedon does too, you know, rewrite scripts from writers. He actually, sure. there was something in his contract where, um, he could only rewrite scripts for, or he, let, I should say he couldn't rewrite scripts for people who had been showrunners. Um, so Moffat, being one of those like he'd run other shows and so you know Davies wasn't doing massive overhauls you know and I don't think he he's he wouldn't have wanted to like he Mm -hmm. said like you know when I get a Moffat script I know it's going to be great um but that's not to say that definitely those Moffat episodes are still within the Davies era right like they have to fit and and that's more what I was getting at like it's it's it not I didn't mean to imply that like the the episodes were not wholly and completely no, Moffat because they certainly are. No, I didn't think are, you but, were. I just wanted but, to clarify. But I think 
you're still even in those episodes dealing with the apparatus that Davies set up, right? Yeah. He's the one who put the scaffolding up yeah. and, and, you know, Moffat might be painting the mural, but he's working from Davies, you know, yeah. scaffolding there. So now yeah, so we get, always... now we're going to get to see Moffat unfettered. Well, exactly. It's a terrifying process. Yeah. Like, you know, Prometheus unbound, it's Moffat yeah. unbound, you know, like this is, yeah. Yeah, like it's terrifying, but also knowing the great stuff he can do, it's exciting too, which is, is kind yeah. of Doctor Who in a nutshell. You right, know, terrifying right. you can and exciting. Be and sad and scared at the same time and beautiful and altogether. yet it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Um Yeah. Great. Well, I'm excited, so Cool. Well we'll so be back we'll, soon. We'll be back for the advent of the Moffat era pretty soon. All right. See you then. Thank mm-hmm. you.